Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about the Liturgy of the Cosmos. These are things that happen naturally, like wind, fire, water. They occur in our everyday world that have been incorporated into the Liturgy itself. So without further ado, episode 13 of season two of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Jesse just came up with a new word. What? It's cosmosis. <laughs> cosmosis. Yeah. Like osmosis. Like you know. cosmosis. What does it mean? It's well, becoming you can infer. by cosmos. Yeah. You know, if you study by osmosis, it's put your uh, book under the pillow when you sleep. It's called studying by osmosis. Mm-hmm. So study by cosmosis. Well, osmosis is one material seeping through something like a, bu- a lipid bilayer. Isn't that into moving a, from high uh, density to low density? Yeah. 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 Like a lipid bilayer, yeah. Yeah. You know about lipid bilayers? <laughs> no. Well, oh, man. wow. Bro. We, and you call yourself a liturgy guy? Yeah, so lipids. Uh, Which are fats. Right. So you can have a lipid bilayer, and then you have the heavier ends of the lipid are on opposite ends, and then you have the little tails facing inward. And when you have a living cell, you have a lipid bilayer, which means things can pass through. Yeah, um, semi-permeable membrane. Yep, semi-permeable memory. And then you have proteins that are just like stuck in that lipid bilayer. And then you have vacuoles. Vacuoles will uh, take the trash out of the cell. And the vacuous. Right. Yeah, okay. Oh, what? <laughs> speaking, Why do you know this? This is of, not biology, guys. I was a biology major. We're not the major. biology guys. I was a biology major for one semester. And apparently you learned some Wow. Stuff. Yeah. Did, did you learn by osmosis, putting the book <laughs> under your pillow? No, I learned, osmosis. I learned by cosmosis. Liturgy by so, week. All right. Yeah. You, Chris, you were telling me this ridiculous thing. Sometimes yes. things you say, you're like, <laughs> you get in, you get into the, like these really, you know, philosophical things. And then you somehow relate them to liturgy. And I'm like, what just happened? Like the, the podcast we did called let's get metaphysical was one of those. And I feel like this is probably similar. So you're talking at lunch today about the cosmos and the nature of liturgy, like the liturgy mm, of nature, right? na- nature worship, nature worship. No, yeah. no, no, no. I don't mean the worship of nature, but how nature itself worships. Like, Adoramus uh, nature, not Adoram, Adoramus, Adoramus te nature. I, I think so. <laughs> now, what brought this Naturally. to mind is yeah. there have been some uh, natural phenomena over the summer. Mm-hmm. Yes, we had that the, big moon in front of the sun thing. What's that called? Uh, eclipse. eclipse. Eclipse, yeah. Right. And so if, were you all in the... <laughs> Did the uh, thought eclipse your brain? <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> we are currently in a cone of darkness in the liturgy, guys, right? But how does a hurricane... Not to be confused with the cone of shame. <laughs> and there's also in uh, uh, about this time the the centenary, the anniversary of the miracle, miracle of the sun, sun where Fatima. the sun was to have danced. Oh, inside. when is that? What's it's it? October 13th. The sun had a perichoresis. Friday the 13th. Perichoresis. Yeah, yeah. It is a Friday. That would be a good day for the eschaton. Yeah, go to confession before that. Just Man. 
It's not a first Friday. Should second Friday. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So the question is, you know, well, what? You know, not that the eclipse was necessarily, you know, divine, uh, divine intervention that made that made that happen. Even though all these things we believe come from the hands of God, and they they have their part in uh, worshiping God. But you know, what place do sun and moon and stars and earth and all of these things have in uh, our cosmic relationship to God? So that was the, that was the anyway, question. The earth's moon is, is very unusual in that it's it? from the distance it is from the earth. It's exactly the size of the sun. When you see Jupiter, it has all many moons. They're little tiny specks. They're way, way, way smaller than the planet itself even though the moon's smaller than the earth it's just in the right place that it will cover the face of the sun but only for like a hundred more years or something like that and it was actually born out of the earth a big giant rock hit the earth pushed a bunch of junk out the other side and then it collapsed it kind of became its own like a kidney stone or something yeah Yeah. well yes i was thinking of something else but (laughs) the moon was born of the earth you're the biologist here and it reflects anyway so what what, what kind of smart things do you have to say about cosmosis chris uh about cosmosis well um we talked uh, in a former podcast, and even though we haven't mentioned this before, I mean, when we do uh, Mr. Goji or Mr. God, which one are you? Mr. Goji. Hey, Mr. Goji. Mr. Goji. Uh, right. So what Mr. Gajko catechesis does is it looks to the roots of uh, liturgical signs uh, to see where it is that they've come from. And most of them, or the most important ones, come from Jesus. Many of them come from Old Testament types. Some of them come from human culture. But there's this one uh, very base category called uh, nature and creation and cosmos, and that the things that take place in the world of nature are used in the liturgy to reveal God to us and are used by us to communicate to God. So the, uh, there's a real nice little uh, uh, line in the catechism that speaks to this. It says, God speaks to man through visible creation, and the material cosmos is so presented to our intelligence that we can read their traces of their creator. And it gives examples. It says, light and darkness, wind and fire, water and earth, the tree and the fruit all speak of God and symbolize his greatness and his nearness. And so there's the question I thought we could talk about is how is it that sun and moon and stars and wind and fire and trees and mountains and rivers and water all have a part in how we worship God? Because not everybody thinks that or recognizes that. I believe that is true. You think that's true? Well, why do, why it certainly reveals something about the nature of God, right? God, God is the author, or Christ, all things are created through him. So something of God is in the order of the world. So yeah. we kind of you know. You think so. Not everybody thinks that. Well, I, I think so. <laughs> and I, <laughs> it's a good question, though. Have you ever encountered anything in this world that made itself? Um, artificial intelligence, Bob. That was made by somebody. Oh, Bob. But it makes itself. It doesn't? It's a, but it's artificial. Yeah, so but somebody else has to make it first. Mm. Yes, I mean, so like you say, yeah, everything comes from something else. Mm-hmm. Even though we think something that the universe as a whole came by itself, from we have no, yeah. I don't know. Well, I, the Big I've Bang thing, yeah. nobody knows what, they did just, oh, we don't know before the Big Bang, so we'll just yeah. as that question. As Chris Stefanik would say, the Big Bang cannot Big Bang itself. That's right. And somebody had to do it. That's right. So yeah, it uh, all these material things, sun and moon and stars, they reveal God who, who made them. Well, that language is used a lot in not just the liturgy or we'll, we'll hear it in scripture, but then we also 
here at Dennis, you've mentioned this. There's the psalm where uh, in the liturgy of the hours, where it's sun and moon, praise the Lord. Sunday week one. Sunday week one. Yeah, yeah it's not a psalm. It's from uh, oh, what is Canticle it? of Daniel. Yeah, Canticle Daniel. of Daniel. Oh, yeah. Okay. Daniel in the the three young men in the fiery furnace after they get uh, mm-hmm. rescued. He sings this great litany about everything in the universe is meant to bless and praise Ish, God. Wait. Hananiah, Azariah, and, and Mishael. Mishael. Shadrach, Michelle, Meshach, right? and Abednego. Michelle or Mishael? Mishael. Yeah. So, Ice and snow, cloud and rain, water creatures, yeah, but, sea monsters. But it's a good question. How does ice, how does a hurricane, how does a dew, how does rain, how do sea creatures, how do those things bless the Lord? Well, as you like to say, dew blesses God by being... By doing what dew does, yeah. being dewy, by and being, being dewy. in in full in its full dewness, yeah, according to its duology. Nice, nice <laughs> duontology, <laughs> duontology. <laughs> but it could be at the natural level; it does what it's supposed to do. But then it can be brought into the liturgical level and used that way. Yeah, and there are these things. Um, so there's a handful of these things that find their work their way into liturgical celebrations. And a lot of these things bear the name of what's called a hierophany. What's a, As opposed a hierof- to a lower ophony? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, actually, H-E-I-R, right? Yeah. Um, about this word, uh, or hierarchy, David, our friend David Fagerberg would say, hierarchy isn't H-I-G-H-E-R key. It's not like who's mm-hmm. higher, who's closer to God, who's... Sacred, sacred, right? Sacred order. Sacred order, or I think... Um, more specifically, a priestly order. Mm-hmm. So the hierophant is the priest of the group. So a hierarchy is an ordered body of priests. And or that perhaps word even sense. came about, not because we'd say, oh, God's up there and we're down here. It's so that the up could come down. It's the question of how can God's extension out of himself, his canonic self-emptying, get to us? And that's why they're interested in that. It wasn't like oh, we're down here and you know, hierarchy at the top we can't get to. It's a, how can all the fullness get to us? How does that happen? And that's where the original thought of hierarchy came from. Yeah, and I think to, you were, before this podcast, you were talking about the dem, demiurge and the and world soul or something like that. Wait, who was talking about demiurge? Yeah, Demi-more. you were checking your phone. Oh, probably. Uh, anyway, so the, the, the world that we have isn't the result of some platonic catastrophe. Or, or chaos. Right. Yeah, everything was in the beginning willfully cosmos, and willfully ordered. beautiful in order and cosmetic. So the reason why material creation is here isn't because there was some heavenly divine catastrophe and we're the, you know, we're the moon that's come out the back end mm-hmm. of this, uh, this great fall. Yeah, we were willed to be hieratic beings uh, on, the, uh, on the earth. And man uh, is meant to be the, high, the priest of creation. He's the homo adorans. And even animals and trees and fruit and rain and lightning and clouds, all these things all participate in the worship of God. So these things called hierophanies uh, exist in many of the world's religions throughout the ages. So these aren't peculiar, I guess, they're not particular to Catholics or sacramental Mm -hmm. people that uh, men and women of all times have seen in certain things these natural uh, creatures that are particularly suited to reveal God and to communicate to him. Now, we saw in the catechism, it gives us some examples about light and darkness and wind and fire and whatnot being especially uh, apt. But the liturgy then, because it, it, it there's this maxim, right, that grace presupposes nature. And so it uses a lot of these material and natural and cosmetic things. Go ahead. You can cough. I know no, no, I just had an itch in my nose. 
<laughs> hey, now that's it's a podcast. It. Okay. You know, we should change that thing at the end from that's a podcast to <laughs> no, no, that's, that's a podcast. podcast. <laughs> well, as long as we change the, replace the coughs during the podcast with There you go. <laughs> okay. So uh, what are some of these uh, hierophanies that the liturgy uses and what do they mean? Yes, Jesse's raising his hand for those of you at home. I, my answer is everything in the liturgy, but no. To be more specific, you have, well, water, and that's one of these hierophanies that I think you would say is uh, in a lot of different religions, right? So water is this natural thing, but then we use it in the liturgy. We okay, but just on the natural plane then, and I think right. you're right, water shows up in all sorts of uh, religious practices. What does it mean in kind of man's cosmic universal religious sense well washing and cleansing and then also nourishment okay yeah it does it does it means all those things what else does it mean death and destruction death yeah because water is uh, a place that's scary right mm-hmm. so when you go wait off to especially i'm a land lover from nebraska so you get into the ocean or something i mean that's creepy mm-hmm. unless <laughs> it's an ocean of corn <laughs> yum yes um be right. So water can mean these things and does mean these things, not just for Catholics, but for uh, for religious for man's religious consciousness throughout the ages. You need water to survive, to replenish yourself. You need water to purify and bathe yourself. But water is also a dangerous and destructive thing. Yeah. So water is one thing. So where do we use it in the liturgy? Uh, holy water, baptism. Okay. Holy water in fonts. Uh, uh, yeah. Then there's a dash of water added to the wine. At the, oh yeah, good one. Yeah. Okay. And that's and then also the priest at one point says, "Wash away my iniquities," and then okay. pours water over his hands. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, and in all those cases, it means either uh, those things we just mentioned, purification or newness, or maybe drowning the old self. Mm-hmm. The water in the chalice is a good one, and I think this has come up on a podcast too. Um, it has many interpretations, but uh, when some some in the tradition invite us to think of the water being poured into the the wine and the chalices, the hum, because there's a there's a prayer that the priest or the deacon says. Do you know what it is? Nope. By the, Something with the by the mystery humanity of this water and wine. To share in our divinity, the humanity. By the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled Himself to share in our humanity. I think you said just wow, that. Wow, you're ready for ordination. Yeah, not quite. This, this is classic. So it Christ. represents. I think it's something like, and then an exact <laughs> direct quote. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> uh, so it represents uh, kind of a very human element being mixed with the divine element. Uh, this, uh, what do you call it? The the kenosis and the the coming down, so that we can come back. And then you also have water out the out of the side, blood and water out of the side of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, out of the, the sight of Christ on the cross, and Dennis has talked about the water that flowed from beneath the temple. The blood oh, of water the water that flowed out from the right-hand yep. side mm-hmm. of the temple. Yeah, I forgot about that. Such a cool image. Okay. All right, what about some of these other ones, these natural hierophanies that Catholic liturgy incorporates besides water? Lightning. Lightning? Well, Wait, we, don't, we don't use what? lightning in the liturgy. <laughs> that, wouldn't that be cool, though, if we did? <laughs> I thought you were serious, and I thought I was like, I'm about to learn something real cool about lightning. <laughs> There's that tenebrae part. Uh, you familiar with tenebrae? Oh, yeah. Te- uh, the, the, you're pounding the uh, pew. You're wrapping the pew to uh, symbolize the earthquaking. Yeah, the earthquake. Yeah. And the, hmm. That's my favorite part of that, because you get to like pound on the pews and be like, yeah. it's really cool. Okay. What about uh, mountains? They're a place to meet God. Okay. Says who? Well, there's a biblical precedent. Going up high. You're always Mo- going up. Can, Moses. You, can you think of a human precedent, though? 
because the, the claim here is all these things are not necessarily Judeo-Christian, although they are because we're incorporating this. But even before that, can you think of kind of human natural precedence? You have a better perspective when you're up on top of a mountain. You can see more. You know mm-hmm. more. Rarefied air. Omniscient. Yeah. You're, uh, you've, you've kind of transcended out of the lowlands of uh, the mundane cares of the world. Like Nebraska. Hey, yeah, that's hey. the, <laughs> to the Acropolis, the high city yeah. where the Well, think about, dwell. so we're in Madison, Wisconsin right now, and outside this window, what can you see? The Capitol building. That's right. And there's probably, I don't know, we were in Philadelphia recently, right? And uh, you're explaining to me that, uh, is it Independence Hall or the City Hall? Was the, was oh, City Hall, yeah. To, yeah, according to city ordinance, that no other building could be oh. higher than, taller than. Yeah. For a while, yeah. For a while, right? And why is that? Because it's the most important. Right. And this is this sort of uh, mountainous human religious instinct, I suppose, that, you know, things that are taller uh, denote something of, of great importance. And so in Madison here, there's probably an ordinance that you can't build anything higher than the state capitol. But you're um, also safe from your enemies up there. It's very hard to be attacked on a mountain. It's a place yeah. of safety and strength. Okay. So is there any evidence of mountain, liturgical mountains? Yeah, absolutely. Well... <laughs> Mount Tabor. Okay. And is that where the transfiguration was? Yeah, yep. traditionally, so, yeah. So, you know, when... Mount Zion. Yeah, so name, we, some, name some Old but Testament we, But mountains. we build churches on those mountains. Yeah, so if we were going we to stop in our uh, Old Testament layer, you got Mount Tabor, Mount Sinai. Is that the same as Mount Horeb? Sinai. Uh, Mount Moriah, okay, where Jerusalem uh, was built, where Abraham took uh, Isaac up uh, to the height. Um, the Carmelites... Is that Mount Carmel? Mount Carmel, right? Yeah. Good. <laughs> and the Temple Mount, which is you know, sometimes thought to be one? Mount Moriah, Mount Zion. Yeah, so that's that's the biblical place for meeting God. Go up Okay, high and, meet and God. so so in, uh, I mean, do we see heights or mountains or elevations at least in uh, Catholic liturgical worship? Well, steeples. Sure. Yeah, well, steeples. yeah, also going up to the altar. You know, back before... People thought that, you know, accessibility was the most important thing. They would often build altars up 8, 10, even 12 steps. So you would go up the mountain to the altar to meet God. They didn't do that so much anymore. And then you would also have the uh, the, but, le- the lectern would also be up high for the preaching of the Word oh, of sure. God. Um, you'd have to climb a staircase up. And, right? Yeah. But I, back to your idea about the, the steeples. I mean, Milwaukee is a great city for this, right? Because you can still oh, yeah. drive through Milwaukee, and all you see is uh, across the st- skyline mostly is church steeples, you know, mm-hmm. all kind of uh, witnessing and proclaiming um, the heavens and to mm-hmm. God. Um, even, Dennis, you, you've given this example in class. In, in downtown Chicago, there was a skyscraper church that by this point is kind of isn't rising to the heights right, anymore. The Methodist but, Temple. It was a skyscraper with a big Gothic steeple on top. They wanted to be the tallest building in the skyline. Yeah. Okay. So all of these places all kind of tap into this natural cosmic um, element of of meeting God on a high place. All right. What else we got? What else? Uh, Let's see. Uh, Wind. Ooh, this is a good one. This is a good one. Is there any? What what does wind (laughs) signify? Holy Spirit. (laughs) Okay. Well, we could signify a lot of things, but yeah, Holy Spirit is definitely one. But then, okay. uh, you know, when we think about music, it has to do with the movement of air and wind and sound, and especially with instruments. Okay, our, but before we get to the liturgical uh, oh, sorry. use, I mean, just kind of on the natural religious plane, what could wind, even if you're a pagan, mm-hmm. what could wind uh, signify? Well, it, the seasons. 
okay. and it could it could bring on the seasons. It could help. Um, it it can help pollinate and okay. help with uh, agriculture, regenerating new life, right? And they were saying about winds of change. Mm-hmm. A good '80s song by some, some rock ballad yeah. by some. I don't. I wasn't. Yeah, you It could also bring destruction too, though, right? Winds. That's true. Damage. Yeah. Okay. So, cause, so it can be very powerful. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. Um, all right. So, is there wind in the liturgy? Yes. That signifies. These so I already Where answered that. Sorry. Okay. Well. Okay. So, so you were talking about the wind. Uh, of uh, choir of music mm-hmm. uh, of sounds of the Dennis talked about the kind of the bellows of the pipe organ that can kind of um, sort of m- mimic the the lungs of the human voice. Mm-hmm. Isn't with there any? breathing on people at different times? Yeah, Where there the, is. The priest the Ooh, breathes the, across the chalice. The bishop during the uh, the chrism mass. Yeah, so at the chr- nailed yeah, it. The chrism mass uh, when the uh, bishop consecrates the chrism. He doesn't do this for the oil of the sick and he doesn't do it for the oil of the catechumens, but when he consecrates the chrism, he breathes over the chrism kind of in the sign of the cross. So you can see him, his head is kind of making the sign of the cross. (laughs) And Dennis, you mentioned too, in the... um, uh, it's in the in the baptismal rite in the extraordinary form, but also in it's uh, an element uh, in the rite of uh, acceptance in the RCIA. Yeah, yeah rite of acceptance. The uh, the priest will breathe or blow into the face of the person who's about to enter into the church, and in those two gestures, for example, well, I suppose all of them signifies these things that you just mentioned that come from the kind of the natural human. Uh, consciousness, you know, uh, of power, of strength, of change, of transformation, of divinity, and the rest. But you see it in Scripture, right? God breathes across the waters in Genesis, and then Christ breathes on the apostles, and that's kind of sending the Holy Spirit. So there's a... And isn't there, during the transubstantiation, the Eucharistic prayers, isn't the priest saying those words, like, over the chalice, or... Is there he's something supposed to lean I've over. Yeah, I've yeah, heard that. Yeah. So I don't have a footnote, but I've heard it said that he's breathing over the the wine as as the and father it might, and it might be, the waters. Yeah, so it might be like a recreation, m- renewing and yeah. creating. Yeah. Okay, but but I think a good point in all of this too is you know, that we recognize that our liturgical celebrations have so many deep roots, so many ties, and they're not just you know the results of the Council of Second Council of Nicaea in whatever year it was, seven eighty seven. <laughs> uh, they, but they come from um, uh, nature and cosmos as well. And so all of these things uh, fold into our liturgical celebrations. Now, maybe before we wrap this up, um, what are some practical consequences? Of, I mean, this, this would be especially um, relevant to you, uh, Dennis. I mean, what types of things ought a church building or a ritual celebration have in it then if nature and cosmos uh, and creation has such a prominent theological contribution. Well, I think if you're going to say this full mystical body, and Aquinas says that the mystical body isn't just the angels and saints and us, it's actually all of creation. So stars are part of the mystical body of Christ, which is interesting. And nature fell to fall. So I think you could, you want to show that it's not just some private, uh, I was out of jail, I'm in jail, now I'm out of jail, so that's my one-on-one you know, salvation, but that all the creation is being brought back to the Father and glorified and restored. So whatever it is, all these elements of nature are going to come in, flowers, stars, paintings, angels, saints. They're shown in their heavenly glory, in their eschatological glory. Okay, so they're presented, uh, they're depicted, uh, but um, I mean, what should the altar be made out of? Stone. 
What should the flowers be made out of? Flowers. 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 <laughs> That's exactly Unless right. they're mosaic or painted or carved and brought to eschatological uh, flowers. Okay. But, uh, but plastic flowers, silk flowers. Generally, those are discouraged. Yeah, yeah. because of this very principle. What uh, fabric ought uh, Father's uh, chasuble made out Silk. of? Silk. Something radiant, glorified, and perfected. And a garment of salvation. Ideally, something natural? Yeah. Polyester? No. Nope. Well, polyester's permitted. Well, no, 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 yeah. But, is but it, it has uh, to look like something radiant and glorified. Yeah. But isn't the ideal, wouldn't it therefore be something that uh, nature, it's nature's own participation? Yeah. Silk is made by worms who eat mulberry trees. And so the tree right. supports the worm. The worm makes the silk. Then humans take the silk okay. worm and make this beautiful yeah. thing. What is the composition of candles, ideally? Beeswax. Be- Beeswax. At least 51%. Right? Okay. What about um, the the... the should you use amplification or not? I mean, ideally, amplified voice or natural sound? Natural. Natural sound. Should you use pre-recorded, uh, pre-recorded. songs or live? <laughs> yeah, see, all of these things, uh, f- I, I think, find a commonality in the place that sun and moon, stars, nature, all has its own worshiping component. They're, they're cooperating with us, the high priests of creation, to worship God. Well, there's and that to, line in the general instruction about the stone of the altar it should be stone and it says and indeed natural stone which i don't know what the opposite of natural stone is maybe they don't some composite stone or epoxy or something yeah but natural stone is the uh preferred option mm-hmm. yeah. mm-hmm. so stars and moon bless the lord oh and we we should definitely mention that today is the feast day of saint francis that yes. we're recording this and then we have the sister moon brother brother son, son brother sister son sister, sister moon, moon. See, and what is, uh, this is hopefully another podcast we'll do sometime about uh, liturgical spirituality, but I would want to ask, you know, what constitutes Franciscan spirituality? And one of these things is a, is a great appreciation for creation and kind of consequently the incarnation. So St. Francis, um, maybe sometimes wrongly, is just associated with bird baths and birds and dogs and cats and mm-hmm. being nice to animals and no doubt he was all of those things it's but because of his great uh, love and understanding and appreciation for the goodness of creation from the hands of god and that all of these things have their own place to worship god along with but him i bet saint francis would not mind cutting down a tree to carve a statue of the virgin mary out of it right so there's kind of a natural end to natural things and a liturgical end for liturg- for those mm-hmm. natural things can mm-hmm. be can can mean they're pulled out of their context and brought to some higher liturgical end what's the liturgical end of a tree altar a beam in a church hymn board yeah what's the natural end pew dirt pigments and paint or brick or whatever burnt sienna burnt sienna Mm. crayons all that stuff catherine of sienna burnt sienna nope too much of a too much of a good too much of a jump yeah okay (laughs) well anyway i think it's time to answer a question Chris, I always like to check in with you. Naturally. How do you feel about that? Naturally. <laughs> As Chris would say, okay. You ever see that Briar's commercial where they're reading ingredients and these like poly... Poly, poly. And the one guy's like, all natural ingredients. Natural means made from nature. <laughs> you're making fun of my farm background. No, no, no. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Gentlemen, we have a doozy here. This one is from TJ, and TJ says, uh, Really, this is a question about the authority of the local ordinary over the Roman Missal as it is celebrated in his diocese. Our archbishop has forbidden priests to celebrate the ordinary form ad orientum because he doesn't like it. That's in quotes. Our parish has celebrated a weekly high mass ad orientum for years. When I noticed our priest celebrating it the other way, I asked him, and his basic response was, we have to obey our bishop, which, of course, we have to do, but this seems a bit beyond his legitimate authority. Is this something he can do? And whether yes or no, what can we, the laity, do? I think we're going to leave TJ a little unsatisfied today. Oh, man. We debated at, at trying to answer this question because we don't know <laughs> what the answer is or if anybody knows what the answer is. Right, so the, the council and even, uh, you know, all the popes, uh, the, the documents speak of the bishop as being the chief liturgist and overseer, regulator of the liturgy in his own diocese. And I think everybody agrees that that's the case. What is uncertain is, well, what exactly does that mean and not mean? What can he do and what can he not do? And if there's a clear answer to that, I think that at least the consensus among us here is we don't know where that answer Yes. Well, what what could he do? Could he could he tell you how to receive the Eucharist if there's a legitimate option? Could he tell you which parts of the mass? To, could could he tell you which creed to use every Sunday? Yeah, that's a good question. And and we were trying to find similar examples. I mean, can a bishop restrict a legitimate option of one of his pastors or one of the lay faithful, for that matter, in his diocese? So could he say uh, the laity will only receive communion um, standing? When it's uh, it's universally stated that they can receive it kneeling, or on the hand or in the tongue, or to a priest, can he say, "We'll only use uh, the second Eucharistic prayer in this diocese. You are not allowed to use the first or the third or the, something like that." Does he have that type of uh, authority and that power? Uh, I I think that pretty clearly the answer is he doesn't. Um, but I, I so I don't I don't know if this would fall into that same sort of. Of category now, clearly, as uh, you know, it said in the in the questioner's email, because he doesn't like it. I mean, no bishop or priest or layperson or anybody with any liturgical authority should be making decisions on what they like or don't like. Presumably, there's uh, there's some pastoral. Um, it's the pastoral well-being of the faithful in his diocese that is behind this question. And to be sure, it's a controversial thing, and many people don't understand it. Um, but as uh, the question, as T.J. rightly says, it's not really a question about autoriantum. It's a question about right. where, what is the nature of the bishop's uh, liturgical authority. Right. So how would you recommend someone proceed? Uh, send a question to the, to the bishop. bishop. To bishop. Well, the bishop's already First, given a reason. First, ask the oh, liturgy think, guys. Well, then <laughs> ask your priest. All right, check that one <laughs> off the, the list. Bishop's Committee on Divine Worship? Is that <laughs> no, a reasonable No, no, I would go to the bishop. I would go to the bishop first because um, if I don't know why the bishop is making this decision, He's the only one who can answer that. Mm -hmm. And so I think out of uh, Christian charity and justice that the person where the question should go is right to the bishop. Uh, what, what is behind your decision? Um, it will give you the chance uh, to, 
tell the bishop your you know your own opinion and uh, on the matter, which presumably he would want to know what you know what are in the minds of the faithful. Um, beyond that, uh, I guess you could I mean you, you could try the USCCB or the Bishops Committee on Divine Worship. I don't think uh, that still wouldn't be any better than asking the bishop. Right, unless um, unless the bishop, they have some answer on what the universal norm or legislation would be on that. At the same time, even if you had so-called you know permission to do something that the bishop doesn't want you to do, there's still the prudent question of do you, is that the fight you want to have with the bishop? Mm-hmm. You know, and there's always, at least within the parish, there's always this. Uh, I've always heard it used <laughs> a loophole, but pastoral discretion is something that I, a lot of pastors will use for their individual parish. Yeah, that could be true. I I think loophole is the right way to yeah. to say it, though. I mean. Uh, being truly pastoral is being obedient and faithful and docile to what uh, the church and legitimate authority wants you uh, wants you to do. So, um, you know, I, I can understand TJ's dissatisfaction, but I admire the the pastor's response as well. Mm-hmm. Is that I, this isn't quite the same thing? But it, um, in a recent discussion, I was having someone about private revelations. You know, one of the first signs that. Uh, of its legitimacy is that you know the person who apparently received it is docile to what the bishop wants him or her to do, and I, um, I don't know, maybe not be the most satisfying thing <laughs> in sure, all case, yeah. but it's um, uh, it, it, it's it's faultless and blameless on your part to do what to be obedient to what the your pastor or the bishop says. That being said, though, it's an interesting legal question. You know, what how would the canon lawyers answer this? Liturgical mm-hmm. specialists. We uh, could probably ask Monsignor Dempsey. Maybe we should ask him and see if we can come back with a response, but... We'll give it a shot. Yeah. yeah. Well, right. TJ... Great question. Sorry. <laughs> I thought they were going to be able to answer this, but... You did uh, <laughs> Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. It's a tough question. But uh, if you want to ask us a liturgy question, then Dennis well, it's true. I mean, can let's answer. Let's take this just another example. So, sumorum pontificum, right? Uh, that... In that letter, it calls the bishop, the bishop remains the chief liturgist uh, in his diocese, and he's the one who's to regulate uh, the use of the extraordinary form in his diocese, right? But, well, but what does that mean? I mean, that doesn't mean that he can prohibit it, because the whole point of that letter is asking the bishop to make available extraordinary form masses for people, and if that doesn't happen, then there's recourse that can take place it really is a very uh to my mind anyway maybe it's clear to some but it's very confusing to my mind just what it means that the bishop is the chief liturgist all right tj sorry we couldn't answer your question but if you have another liturgy question that you can ask an easy you can, one please. you can email it to questions at liturgyguys.com thank you and god bless the liturgy guys is produced by the liturgical institute If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.